Welcome to a special episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting. For Tuesday, October 20th, the Mom and Dad Are Fighting Teacher Roundtable Fall Report Card. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, host of Slate's The Kids Are Asleep, and of course, a host of Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast. Back in July, my co-host, Dan Kwa, asked four teachers to talk candidly about what it's like to be a teacher facing the great unknown of fall 2020. Now, we're a few months into the school year. We decided we should check in with them to see how they're dealing with this unprecedented semester. I'm excited to catch up with Cassie Sarnell, an early childhood special education teacher in Albany, New York. Hi. Hi, Cassie. Brandon Hersey, who teaches second grade in Federal Way, Washington, and is also on the Seattle School Board. Good morning, Brandon. Good morning. Good morning. How y'all doing? We've also got Matthew Dix, a fifth grade teacher in West Hartford, Connecticut. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for joining us again. And last but certainly not least, Amy Scott, an eighth grade teacher in Durham, North Carolina. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. So glad to be here. Good morning, everybody. Thank you all for joining us for this. In July, Dan asked you guys to find three words to describe the emotional state of teachers in that moment. I'd like to hear you all choose three words to describe your individual emotional state now that we're a little ways into the new school year. How's everybody feeling right about now? We can start with you, Cassie. Apprehensive, busy, and surprised. What are you apprehensive about? Prior to schools reopening, Albany County was doing pretty well. We were at about like a 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5% positive rate on our tests. Um, and since school's starting, and I'm sure this is going to be a theme for everybody, that number has gone up. Um, and we're hovering at about 1%, which is, I mean, compared to certain other states, like that's nothing. But at the same time, it is going up. And there's a part of me that's like, this is inevitable, We've opened schools, people are being less careful, and nationally, numbers are going up so much that a full-blown second outbreak is just coming. What about you, Matthew? I would say I'm hopeful, <laughs> I'm nervous, and I'm excited. What are you excited about? Well, I'm excited to actually be with my students. You know, we're in a hybrid model where I see half my class for one week and then half my class the other week. And I mean, it's the reason I became a teacher was to actually spend time with children. So I'm excited by by the ability to, at this moment, be able to actually spend time in a classroom with kids. And on Wednesday of this week, we're actually going back full time with a full class. So there's part of me that's excited about actually bringing all of my students together for the first time so they can see each other and it can feel like a, a real class. But at, at the same time, I'm uh, I'm fairly nervous about the whole situation. Amy, what about you? I'd say primarily concerned. Um, my area, the plan is to go back to a hybrid model in January. And I don't understand that just because nothing has changed. Like what was different between August when we started and, and January? I, I can't see much that has changed. I'm tired. <laughs> it's really exhausting to teach online. But I'm surviving. I guess that's the other thing. I'm surviving. And Brandon, how about you? Yeah, um, I guess my three words would be keeping hope alive. We've been inside for months. I was really apprehensive as well going into the beginning of the year. But when I saw like how excited my second graders were to be there and to log on and to keep learning and not just like since we're, you know, we, we split into two groups. So I have an AM class and a PM class. 
they're all amped to be online and learning and connecting with each other. And so I feel like the least that I can do and the least that we can do as educators is meet them with that same enthusiasm and excitement. And, it, and it's been great for me too, right? Like, I think so much of where my concern was coming from was going to be like, how are my students going to engage? Are they going to have access to technology? And by and large, I only have a couple of students who, who are really struggling at this point. And out of 20, that is something that I can work with and I can work with their parents and I, and I find hope in that. But really, quite honestly, it's like, you know, we got this, you know, our kids are so resilient and, and the least we can do is meet them with that same resiliency and, and just show up, you know, ready to teach as much as they are showing up ready to learn. So, Amy, we have something in common. Uh, and so I'm not surprised that and I'm, I'm not saying that other folks may not be tired, but uh, it, it doesn't surprise me that that was one of the words that you used to describe how you're feeling right now. Um, we're both single working moms. Of course, there's been a whole lot of talk about how particularly devastating this moment is for women uh, who are both workers and caregivers. And to be doing both of those things at one time by yourself is uh, quite the task, is it not? So it's Sunday morning that we're having this conversation. Amy, what's on your agenda for today? <laughs> what does a typical Sunday look like now? Um, so my children are being babysat by the TV right now. Uh, so I can record this podcast and then I will try and prep some food for the week uh, this afternoon. And then my, some friends are having a baby and they're having sort of a, an, um, socially distant picnic at the park. And then I, you know, I set the alarm, I get ready to do the week. And, and I have to say that the, I think I mentioned this last time, the, the only reason I'm able to uh, do my job in any sort of effective way is because I have my niece babysitting for me during the week. You know, I try and live my principles. I believe in a $15 minimum wage, so that's what I'm paying her, but it is expensive. Even for part-time care, I was not planning on having uh, childcare expenses. I was like, yay, kindergarten. And now I have childcare expenses, so I'm dipping into my meager savings uh, to do that. But I feel it's a privilege that I am able to do that. The reason I'm so tired is I'm still recovering from the beginning of the year. Our schedule was a, a traditional bell schedule. Kids were expected to be on Zoom for 50 minutes an hour from 8.30 to 3.30. Um, and it was absolutely insane. And so they finally changed it a couple weeks ago. So we have shorter classes and, you know, less time on Zoom, more, you know, independent work time. And it, it, the moment we started that, I was like, oh, this feels humane. I didn't realize how utterly stressed out I was. I mean, I felt that I was stressed, but I didn't realize how, like, just untenable that was until we stopped doing it. So I'm still kind of recovering from that. Hopefully second quarter will be, we're about to start second quarter. Hopefully second quarter will be a little less exhausting because we're going to stick with that schedule. How different is this school year from what you imagined over the summer when you were preparing uh, for this to start back up again, Amy? It's pretty different in that the end of the year last year, we were just kind of putting out fires and trying to teach online, but the expectations were pretty low, I'll say. And this year, you know, the expectations are higher. We're expected to do a lot more. It's been interesting and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm learning a lot and I'm, I'm, I'm improving my practice for sure. Like I've learned that you, you know, these kids are completely overwhelmed. Um, one of my colleagues was saying, 
you know, when, when you're in the classroom and you get them online, they can look at your screen, they can look at uh, their neighbor's screen, they can whisper to their neighbor, Where, what are we doing, you know, and when we're in Zoom, it's not possible. So the kids get lost more easily. And so to sort of consolidate resources, one thing I've learned is to put all the attachments on every single assignment, like repeat attachments over and over and over and over again. Um, because if you think about it, when, you know, your colleague sends an email and says, you know, oh, don't forget to do that survey that somebody sent out two weeks ago, and then they don't link the survey to that email, and then you have to go sorting through, it's really frustrating. So that kind of thing has been helpful, just learning what what works for online learning. I think that's been really, really helpful, just trying to adapt in that way. I'm really enjoying getting to know some of my students. I'm really enjoying some of my classes. But, you know, when you have, you know, Brandon was talking about meeting his second graders. It's so great. Uh, Brandon, how many second graders do you have total? Uh, so it's been fluctuating a little bit. Um, so right now, I think we're sitting at like 19. So I have 110 kids because I teach eighth grade. And so like reaching out to those kids who need support, it's so much harder because they, you know there're just so many of them. So I would imagine that middle school and high school teachers who teach a whole lot of kids are having trouble keeping up with the kids. Like I feel like some of my kids are really 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 slipping through the cracks and I'm we're all doing our best to scramble and and sort of keep them afloat, but it's 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 difficult. Is anyone else um, at this point feeling like there are students in their classes that are slipping through the cracks? And if so, why? Are they struggling with technology? Are their parents not um, guiding them through the process? What are some of the challenges that your kids are having with uh, distance learning? Well, I can tell you that because I'm seeing my class, I'm seeing my students one week on, one week off, I can sort of see the difference between the two very starkly. The students who spend a week at home, I get to teach them for 30 minutes a day at the end of the day. So most of the work they do is independent and their level of engagement, their effort levels, all of those things are dramatically increased when they're in the classroom during the week that they're actually physically with me. And many of them, I see their effort and their engagement almost disappear sometimes when they're at home. I don't know if that is because they feel the difference as well. Sort of they come to school and they go, hey, this is school. I'm going to work hard and do what I'm supposed to do. But now I'm home for a week. I, th- I think some of them actually see it as sort of their vacation week. Like I send them work, but it doesn't actually get done in the way I need it to. So, you know, I'm doing a lot of meetings with parents because I, a lot of cases, parents are just at work and they're sort of not aware of what's going on. I'm working with 10 year olds and many of them are home alone at this point. Cassie, I think a lot of us uh, are curious how early childhood special education would work via Zoom. Can you talk a little bit about how you're creating order and space and nurturing for kids who may require additional support from a distance? Are you feeling that these kids are not being engaged or or struggling to be engaged like um, some of the children that Matt and Amy mentioned, or are you seeing the opposite? I'm actually not doing distance learning. That was sort of my solution to that. I'm working at a school district now where parents chose either to be virtual or in-person and the in-person is full-time and the virtual is full-time. So there's no hybrid. Um, And I was lucky enough to get to pick which one I wanted to do. And I picked in-person because I think that that is something that I was feeling really frustrated about that. I felt like I wasn't reaching my kids. I wasn't meeting my goals. I wasn't making the kind of progress I was looking for. And 
at the time at the start of the school year, infection rates were low enough that I felt safe going into school. Um, and even now, I mean, I, I did just complain about it, but 1% is not that bad. In my district, we haven't had a case in my building yet. We've had two cases in the high school building and that's it. There have been a couple of kids that were in special education virtual whose parents were like, forget this, we're sending them in person because they felt like they weren't receiving the same benefit. And that's not to say that the teachers who were working virtually weren't working incredibly hard because I, I know that they are because I work with some of them, but just it's so hard. It is so incredibly hard to engage kids in general in via distance learning. And when you take a kid who is already behind or already sort of at the precipice of slipping through the cracks or has already slipped through the cracks, trying to f- sort of bolster them and, and bring them back up afloat is so hard. It's such like a, it's an almost insurmountable feeling challenge. And speaking as a parent of a, a special needs child, like my twins are six and one of them has Down syndrome. And my niece was on vacation last week. So I was trying to get my boys to their respective Zoom classes. And it was hard enough with um, Patrick, who does not have special needs, um, to keep him in front of his screen and working and doing what he needed to to do. And then with Arlo, the one who has Down syndrome, I mean, I could not, like, even if I was sitting with him, I couldn't get him to sit there and do the activities or pay attention or anything like that. Um, So fortunately, the the OT sent me a message and said they're trying to come up with some other alternatives for second quarter. But it is so, I just want to speak on behalf of, you know, as a teacher and a parent, but, but as a parent who who has experience teaching and I, 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 I could not do it. I failed miserably at the sort of teacher support that I was supposed to give to my students for, for their teachers. Like it's just so hard to get them to focus in general. And then when you add the sort of like the wall that is the screen, like the, the little tiny bit of focus that they had, it just drops and then they fall behind and then they get lost and then they don't want to do it anymore. And then the, the little insy bitsy bit of focus that remained is gone. And then like, it just, it's cyclic in the worst way. That's right. Brandon, how are you balancing the responsibilities of the Seattle school board with the uh, new challenges that come with this year's learning model? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely been an adjustment, but um, for me, it, it's given me an opportunity to have more time, right? So like before I was commuting down uh, to Federal Way, Washington, which is about 30 minutes south of Seattle. And now that we are in a complete remote model and will be until at least through December, um, I actually regained a lot of time, right? So I'm an early riser. I, I'm up by 5 a.m. like most other teachers. And um, that's a time when I really used to respond to emails. Um, I'm very clear with my schedule um, because my responsibilities in federal way and to my students come first. And I, and I just make that very clear to um, my responsibilities in the school board. Um, and so what that looks like for me is 5 a.m. wake ups, making sure that I'm prepped, sending emails and resources out to families. Um, I take a lot of meetings before uh, 8 a.m. And then I use um, the hour before we begin classes to uh, make myself available for office hours occasionally uh, for families that, you know, want to come in and have any conversations that they need to have. And then um, right after school ends at 3.30, I'm logging on for uh, virtual school board meetings and the like. So I've actually regained quite a bit of time, about six or seven hours a week that I'm not commuting. That is, you know, 
free for me to do whatever it is I need to do to support my students or to support my constituents here in Seattle. And, and so, yeah, it, it, while it has been a little bit of a learning curve, the, my, my organization has really, really gone up <laughs> during this time, just because, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in one place for the majority of the day, which has its own challenges in, in, in and of itself. So I, I think a lot of us have found that despite all the difficulties and challenges uh, that we're facing with how we're working right now, that when you take commuting time off the table, uh, that can give us uh, that there's a benefit to that. Um, are there any other benefits to the weirdness of this school year that any of you all have experienced? I mean, I'm getting to know my kids in my own children. You know, I'm able to spend more quality time with them and, you know, do things that I have wanted to do for a long time just because the commute time is taken out of it. And I'm, you know, I'm, especially with the new schedule, I'm not as exhausted at the end of the day. And I actually am like, oh, I really like my children. <laughs> so that's been a, a benefit for me. You know, teaching half my class at a time, I have 19 students, but I get eight on one week and 11 on another. What I've noticed right away is students who in the past have had difficulties in terms of behavior, all of those behaviors disappear when there's only eight kids in a class, that it turns out that there's a that there's sort of a maximum number of kids you need in order for someone to, to create problems. And when there's only eight, uh, it's hard for a kid who wants to even create a problem to do so. But I've actually had two of my students say that this is much easier for them to sort of regulate their behavior because there's just fewer interactions that they have to manage throughout the day. So we're like I said, we're going back to a full time everyone in school in a couple of days for me. But these first few weeks of getting to know my kids and settling them in in a way that I've never done before has actually really been beneficial for kids who struggle, I think. Coming from a special ed perspective, we've had a really hard time trying to figure out how to get all of our kids services done because our school day is shortened. Um, part of our school's policy to keep us all safe is we're not mixing cohorts. So there's uh, more restrictions on who I can do work with and when. But on the flip side, um, we've had kids who have previously struggled a little bit keeping up with the pace of the class in a class of 20 kids who are now in a class of 10 kids. And that means that the pace of the class is, is more catered to their ability just because they are one, they're 10% of the class instead of 5% of the class. Um, and they are getting a bit more individual teacher attention because the teacher is not stretched between 20 kids. They're stretched between 10. Um, and so in some ways, some of my students have really, um, had a much better start to their years as a result of just the smaller class sizes um, and a lot more routines in place just because there have to be because of COVID. So the students of mine who maybe need that much more uh, rigid structure are actually getting that thing, um, which has been kind of nice to see for those students. Yeah, for me, I would say it's probably along very similar lines. You know, again, we're 100% remote. Um, but for us, we we really took a look at our entire system and our district never really closed, at least at the top end, and especially for uh, teachers who were helping figure out how are we going to reopen effectively. And so our curriculum has been truncated. We've taken out a lot of the unnecessary aspects of our learning, but also really figuring out how do we fold in the really important things and make more time for things like science, history, socio-emotional learning, um, and really cut out a lot of the fluff and repetition that comes with like building number sense and things like that. And so when my students log in, since we're only really together for two and a half to three hours a day, um, 
they, they're really engaged and they're ready to go. And, and the content has been digestible to the point to where, a lot, at least compared to my other years teaching, um, the students are picking up on the concepts a lot more quickly because they know that they're only going to be in class for three or so hours. And so they're, it's not really like thinking through the entire the entire day for them, which for an eight-year-old is really difficult, you know, sit through an entire class uh, for, you know, seven, six and a half hours a day, whatever your, whatever your school day might look like. And now that we're in this online model, they're at home, they're comfortable. We've even had, you know, parents uh, come in and participate in the lessons. We've had parents read books. We've had parents like really engage with a lot of the socio-emotional learning and aspects. So from my perspective, at least, we have really been looking for opportunities to do things differently and, and silver linings and really trying to find the positives through the situation, given that for us, it's not going to change and, and really being creative around what does this look like uh, in terms of education? How can we really build this into a system that is going to you know, exist past COVID and past Corona? Um, and so there are just a lot of really great things that are coming out of this time um, that I hope we can find ways to carry on even when we're back to uh, fully in-person learning. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Talking about money can be so hard, especially when the person you're talking to is still learning how to do long division. That's why Million Bazillion, a webby winning podcast from Marketplace, is here to help. I'm Bridget, and with my fellow co-host Ryan, we help teach your little ones about complex topics like bankruptcy, climate change, and why there's so much gold at Fort Knox, and so much more. Listen to Million Bazillion wherever you get your podcasts. Matt, I know you're only, uh, you've only seen your kids in small groups thus far, but I'm curious, uh, are fifth graders wearing masks and avoiding physical content for the duration of the school day? They're required to, re- to wear masks. I, we don't wear them when we're eating. So uh, fortunately, right now I'm in Connecticut. So we are outdoors almost always when we're eating. We're able to go outdoors to take mask breaks and things like that. As the winter comes, that's not going to be a possibility. So we'll be unmasked when we're eating lunch together. Uh, and we'll be unmasked when we take mask breaks. You know, we'll be socially distant and not speaking when we take our masks off. My kids have sort of figured out things like, I need to take my mask off, so I'm going to take a very slow drink of water right now. And I have no problem with that. I certainly understand it. But overall, they've been exceptionally compliant. I, I would actually say that the kids seem to be dealing with the masks better than the adults. They are far more flexible, and they seem to have accepted it as a reality in a way that, frankly, I have not. Mm. I think I'm more frustrated with my mask over the course of the day than any of my students. 
And in terms of socially distancing, at this point, it's simple because I have eight or 11 kids in a, in a large room and they're pretty good about it. I mean, when they're not, it, it's not that they're being willful, it's that they're forgetting, that they're sort of all walking over to their locker mm-hmm. at the same time and not being patient. But, you know, it's not purposeful. Amy, you have eighth graders. How are they doing? This is a really significant year for them, and it's been disrupted, and it's the second academic year that's been disrupted in a row. Are they giving school their all? Are they too distracted? What is What are eighth graders feeling? I have a range, of course, of, of students, um, just like always, but I think it's been really, really hard for them. We have a couple of students that are new to the school this year. I had a little survey question the other week that was like, you know, who are your friends on the eighth grade team? And I, I literally had two students say, I don't have any friends yet because I haven't met them. Like they have not been to school. Um, so that's frustrating. I do worry a lot about um, having all their interactions be online. You need to have personal interactions with the people that you're interacting with online. So you, especially for eighth graders, so they remember that they're people. Um, and so I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about that. I think the kids are, are for the most part, very resilient, and they have been doing a great job. I have some kids who are just, you know, blowing it out of the water. Um, They've done some projects, like hilarious, creative, wonderful projects. Um, but I also had a kid, you know, who ended the quarter with a, a literally a one in my class. I've never had that happen before, like a one out of a hundred. You know, he has special needs, and normally, you know, he would be in the the, the school building and have support, and he would be turning things in. You know, whether they were complete or whether they were, you know, correct or whatever, he would at least be turning in work and he doesn't have the, you know, the support at home um, that many kids have. There are some kids who are going to be missing a year of instruction or more. We're trying to serve them. We're changing things. We're doing what we can, and we'll keep doing that. But what are we? What are we going? How are we going to plan for the kids who are going to come back in so far behind? That is a very important question, and it's actually one I don't want to stress the group out with because we've got a while to go before we we have to answer it. But that is an important uh, thing that all of us are thinking about. You know, like that the gap between where children would have been had they a traditional year of school versus how they're going to be returning to school next year and hopefully uh, under normal circumstances next year. Amy, there's something else you mentioned that I think is super uh, important. It's been particularly heartbreaking to watch in my home, hearing a kid say, oh, I don't have friends. And I've noticed that my daughter doesn't necessarily choose to interact with. She only She's known these children for a year. They were in the classroom for half, you know, a little bit more than half of last school year. Um, so she had friends, but we hadn't graduated to play dates yet because we were new in town. And so now when it's lunchtime and they've got these breaks throughout the day where some of the other kids are interacting and chit-chatting, she wants to go be in front of a screen. She wants to talk to me. You know, she's not seeing this as time to connect with those kids. How are the rest of you all seeing children interact, whether it's in person in a small group or via Zoom? Do you feel that your your children have been able to foster or maintain friendships with their classmates? Uh, which is an incredibly important part of school, right? The socialization, and it's largely been taken away from them. For me, right, with special education, I have, for example, I have two kindergartners on my caseload, and both of them have play skills goals, 
And I had to sit down with their kindergarten teachers and be like, look, I'm in here for an hour a day so I can measure that goal and work on that skill. But these kids are expected to stay six feet apart at all time. And your schedule is so tight that there is no playtime. What can we do to begin to foster social skills for these girls? Because uh, in my school district, Mm -hmm. kindergartners are are new to the school. Um, Most of these kids did not go to preschool together. They do not know each other. And on the one hand, the kids are really sweet and they're really nice. And kindergarten is still kindergarten. So they're still doing like crafts to learn about counting and stuff like that. But they're not getting to sit at the table during center's time and play together and like work on the craft together. Everybody has their own materials. There's no sharing materials because they can't touch the same materials. And it's been a really big challenge to try to figure out how I'm going to teach these kids to build social skills when they're not even allowed to be within six feet of their peers. And I have had times where... I'm starting to see it, but I have to squash it because it's, you know, it's during a mask break and we're outside, but they have to stay six feet apart because their masks are off and they, they both rush to the same spot to play a jumping game together. And I have to say, well, I'm sorry, but you can't do that right now. It's not safe when it would be a great opportunity otherwise for me to work on fostering that skill with them. Um, and instead I have to completely squash it and feel like a monster for doing so. So I have a second grader uh, myself, and I've definitely been incredibly impressed by how her teacher manages to keep the kids mostly engaged um, throughout the day. But I've also witnessed some moments that were uncomfortable, right? Just kids being kids, getting distracted, technology glitches, all things that happen in a regular classroom, but you don't typically have parents or other caregivers present, if you will, to watch it happen. So this is a two-part question. One, what's it like to teach in front of an audience like this? Um, Have you had any moments where, say, a parent has jumped in with an opinion or to chastise their child or perhaps even to defend them? Uh, And two, I'd love to hear any stories that would make an outtake real if there was one. Have there been any super funny, awkward online moments uh, from the first month or so of school for any of you guys? I think that was one of my biggest anxieties, right? Because it's like for teachers, uh, depending on the parent and depending on the relationship that you have, it can either be really great or really stressful (laughs) to have uh, someone in your workspace, right? And that's not really something that I think a lot of the population really experiences to the level of teachers, right? Um, So when I have a family member or a parent just, you know, magically pop into my classroom unannounced, it can be really, it can be really, um, it can just throw you off of your game, right? Um, and now that we, because I think really where our mindsets need to be is because typically when we have a classroom and a parent walks in, it's almost as if the parent is a guest in the classroom. Now that we are teachers, we are becoming guests in our students' homes, right? Like they are inviting us into there. And so for me, at least, it's been about changing my mindset and really looking at it as a benefit instead of something to be afraid of, right? Because like, for me, it's always been about family relationships and student relationships first, and then the academics come second. And so really thinking about how to build in those relationships and how to make it kind of like an expectation and very fluid uh, for parents to participate in lessons as much as they can or feel comfortable doing so um, has been really great, right? And so really thinking about what are, and really identifying and building those relationships to find out what are our parents' strengths? How can I think creatively about how to include them in the learning? And and how how do I present myself 
yourself as, you know, a guest in their home while still engaging them in, you know, this critical thing that is second grade has really been at first was a challenge, but now for me has become a real joy because it really opens up our kids' minds to what is education and what is school, right? Like the more that we can like break down all of these societal barriers between school and home, I think we're going to have kids who show up more whole and more ready to learn, especially from black communities, because education is so communal. Education has always been something that you didn't only get at school. For me, education happened at church. It happened in the grocery store. It happened on the sidewalk. And I, I really am challenging myself and especially my team to think about what does it look like to really unsilo what it means to go to school and to really open it up to, you know, all the cool things that are happening in the world and, and all of the great possibilities that could be had with having your parent take a really active part in your learning? I am. Um, I broadcast my learning to my remote students. I've been doing that. It's not required, but it just made my job easier. But as a result, that means that, you know, anyone can sort of watch what I'm teaching. And because I need to do it asynchronously, I'm also recording it and then posting it online so kids who can't attend can watch later. So I've had moments where last week I crumpled up a piece of paper and I threw it at a kid and said, you're making me crazy. And I threw the paper at her. And she said, you know, you are being recorded right now and people are watching you throw paper at me. And <laughs> you just kind of forget that you're being recorded, you know. And then I'll get like a chat message, you know, in my Google Meet and it'll say something like, my mom thinks you're hilarious, but a little crazy. That was something I got the other day. So, you know, there is the hazard of you forget that you're actually, you know, being viewed in front of kids. And and so often the relationship you have with kids and the dynamic in a classroom is sort of not understandable unless mm -hmm. you're in the classroom all the time and you you understand the relationship that's going on between teacher and kids. But ultimately, as I tell my students, I say, I have to trust your parents that they get it. And if they don't get it, they'll ask me and I can make them get it. So so it's been you know slightly hazardous. And for that reason, some of my colleagues are choosing not to do it because they're not required to do it. But they just don't want people sort of watching them teach. But for me, it's just made my job easier. And so far, it's been working really, really well. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Has anyone learned anything about their classroom style that they didn't quite realize until they had to adjust? It's really hard not to have private conversations with kids. I mean, one of the things I think I do well is I just take children aside and speak in direct and meaningful ways to redirect behavior and engagement. And when you're in a Google Meet, you can't do that. You can't ask everyone to leave the meeting so that you can chat with someone for three minutes. So for me, it's been so challenging in the middle of a lesson to not just sort of take a kid aside and say, like, what's going on today? Like, is there something I need to know? Or are you just going to get to like, what's the deal? And I can't do that. Uh, I still do it, but I can do it. And I have to do it in a way that is more public and you know, less personal. And that's just so hard for me to not be able to talk to my kids in that private way that I can in the classroom. Are there any things that you all have tried since the classrooms have shifted uh, in shape and uh, direction that just haven't worked? Or are there some things that are working really well for you right now that you might want to share with other teachers? 
I try to find some high interest things that don't take a long period of time that I can sort of engage kids in quickly if necessary. So I've been teaching them sign language, for example, and they love it. I've just discovered that they really like learning this new language. So I just keep it in my back pocket. So in the middle of a lesson, when I feel engagement is waning, I say, all right, let's learn two new signs today before we move on. And that just increases their their willingness to learn. Or things like, I do a lot of here's 20 math problems, but you can choose any six to do, which is something I would normally do in class, but now I do it much more consistently. Just getting the sense that if you're at home and you have some control over your learning and some say, it's even more valuable, I think, than when it is in the classroom. So I'm trying to give kids those kinds of opportunities whenever I can. So how are teachers supporting one another right now? Something I observed very early in my academic career was just the way that teachers relied upon one another from walking into the classroom next door to borrow, you know, some chalk or an eraser to, you know, spending countless hours, you know, talking smack about us in the teacher's lounge. Now that that isn't something that's available to all of you all uh, right now, how are you all taking care of each other? My team is in lockstep. Uh, so we use a, um, a curriculum called Ready Math, and then we also have a district-developed ELA curriculum. And so what we've been doing is a lot of the uh, lessons that we teach are mini lessons, which means that they only last anywhere from five to seven to 10 minutes. And so we all, uh, we teach four days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. And so there are four people on our team. So we each take a day and plan and develop the PowerPoints slides that we share in the asynchronous work for that day. Um, and all of our things are aligned. We've been, you know, working together for the past three or four years now, all same four people. And that's been great because we all know what each other's strengths are. And so just it's made it a very natural transition into a remote setting because, you know, many hands make light work, you know, and the whole goal of the way that our district views education is to be as aligned as possible so that if, a second grader, you know, has to go into another classroom because a teacher is sick, they're going to be learning the same thing. Or if we have, you know, um, our population is very transient in federal way, moving from apartment complex to apartment complex, home to home, um, we want it to be an experience to where if you're moving from the school where I teach to a school that's five or 10 minutes away, you know, generally you'll be learning the same thing at the same time. And so with that type of mindset, it's been really, really easy to work with one another and really has helped us really think about like, how do we want to work as a team and how can we make this an easier lift for everyone? Are any of you all seeing movements in your communities amongst parents and other concerned, uh, if you will, adults to reopen schools? And if so, how are you feeling about that? We definitely are. And I mean, it's a little different between Federal Way and Seattle. Um, because federal ways situation in terms of dealing with the coronavirus is just very different than what we're experiencing in Seattle. But what I would just remind folks is that regardless of where you are or where you might be, there are people in your community that are still very much so dealing and dying from this virus. You know, uh, for me personally, uh, I just lost my uncle to coronavirus um, about a week and a half ago. And even though that's in Mississippi, like that still has an impact on my mental health here in Seattle. And so while, while we might be in a place to where our transmissions and cases might be low, the mental health impacts and the familial impacts of this virus, especially for communities of color, especially for the black community, is still very real and very present. 
And so I would just urge folks, especially as we head into cold and flu season um, and seeing the resurgence of this virus in Europe, literally as we speak, I, I would just urge folks to be very patient because as we said before, I believe in this space the last time, the alternative uh, is, is death and, and students will continue to get sick and many will continue to to lose family members if we rush back into um, rush back into an in-person setting uh, in, in various places. So that would just be my only word of caution is to please just just continue to think of others that are still very much so dealing with the negative impacts of COVID-19. It is very far from over and we have a long way to go before we get back to any sense of normalcy. And, and if we take it slow now and really make sure that when we do reopen, we, we, we reopen correctly for those schools that are still in a remote in a remote model, I think is going to yield a better result and a better educational experience for everybody involved, all up and through the system, parents, students, teachers, administration, school boards even. Before we wrap up, what do teachers need from parents right now? How can we best support you all and our kids as we try to navigate this very strange and hopefully as temporary as possible new normal? What do we need to know about what you all are experiencing? And also, how are you all as teachers extending grace to parents and families that are also struggling in this moment? Well, I'll jump in because, you know, I'm going to answer not sort of on my behalf, but living with a teacher, Mm -hmm. you know, my wife is a kindergarten teacher. I can tell you that the things that we need sort of, it's varied depending on the classroom and the teacher, but the thing that has made the biggest difference in my wife's life in terms of parents is just the messages that she receives every day from parents thanking her and telling her uh, how much they appreciate her and really messages saying thank you for going into a school and putting your life on the line for my kid because I think this is important. I just think that when those emails and those letters come in from my wife every day, it changes her entire disposition because it is hard to be appreciated by five-year-olds or 10-year-olds. They, they don't know what to say. They're not the they're not the most articulate people when it comes to saying thank you for what you've done for me. It just doesn't work out that way. So we need to hear from parents if they're if they're feeling appreciative and if they're feeling like uh, their teacher is doing a great job. That for me has been the biggest uh, the biggest impact, at least for my wife. And and when I receive those messages, they mean a great deal to me too. I think that can that can go beyond uh, all that you could imagine. I think for me. I need two things from parents. The first is responsibility. Um, as I mentioned, my school district is, is fully in person or it's optionally fully in person and the cases are going up here. And I think for a lot of us, it's, it's becoming harder and harder to focus on wearing our mask everywhere we go and, and staying with your, your pod and not really seeing people. And we're starting to sort of become complacent with respect to the virus. And that all that does is put me at risk. It puts my students at risk And most importantly, like Brandon was talking about, it puts people at risk that I don't necessarily know. I've had two students this year lose family members and not necessarily to the coronavirus, but part of me wonders if their medical care would have been different in a normal year. And that's a really scary and sad thing to think about. I need parents to be responsible, to take responsible actions, to try and and be safe as possible. And then the other thing that I think I need and my coworkers need is patience. This is a hard year. And especially for parents with kids with special needs, there can be a lot of feeling like the world is ending. If your kid is not catching up right now, if your kid is not speeding through curriculum right now to get caught up to their peers and it's just not 
necessarily a realistic goal to set this year. So having your patience with your child and with us and with the, the process of the school year in general for everybody, I think would be really appreciated. And for the most part, I feel like the parents I have been working with have been incredibly patient with me. Continuing that would be really appreciated. Eighth grade is a little bit different from the, you know, the elementary level. And I think what I do need is for parents to encourage their kids to become their own advocates, uh, to communicate with teachers um, directly, but also to like <laughs> CC their kids on emails that they send to me. Um, because so often the parent is asking a question that the kid I think knows the answer to. And so I don't actually need to um, answer all of the questions. I can say, hey, you know, we talked about that and it's, you know, here's the resource and that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, communication is definitely a big thing. Uh, but I also just speaking as a parent of little kids and, you know, trying to teach and seeing how hard it is. I mean, I want parents to give themselves a, a pat on the back and a break as much as possible. Um, I know everybody's doing their best. And like I said, I was failing miserably last week when my babysitter was out of town. I just could not do it. And I was off work. I wasn't even trying to work and I couldn't do what I needed to do to get my kids online. So please know that, you know, Every time you email and you ask for that link again, um, or I should say <laughs> when I was emailing their teachers and asking for the link again, I understand what you're going through. I'm not holding anybody to any sort of standard this year. It is ridiculous and we're all just doing the best we can. I think the only thing that I would ask for again is just patience and understanding and meeting us where we're at and allowing us to meet y'all where you're at. And by y'all, obviously, I mean parents. Um, I think clear communication is probably the thing that I would really appreciate. Just if there's something going on, please let us know because we as educators have access or at least know where to point folks who need specific uh, help or services or just, you know, need a place to go to to get whatever it is they might need, right? The, the list goes on for for the amount of needs that just are right now. And, and there's just no more plain way to put it. So just don't be afraid to contact us. Don't be afraid to reach out because really now more than more than any time ever, I see myself less as a teacher and more as just a community member looking to support in whatever way I can. And the way that I do that now is through education. I would just ask, please just don't suffer in silence. Reach out and and let us know what's going on so that we can help and we can support um, because we care about y'all. We love y'all very dearly and and we want to do everything that we can to to make this burden and to make this time a little bit more livable and a little bit more manageable. Amy, Cassie, Matt, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. We really appreciate this and we are grateful to you for your sacrifice, for your work and we are rooting for you. We're cheering for you. Um, and we as parents and teachers are going to survive the school year somehow. Uh, we're going to do it together. You can read more wise advice from Amy, Cassie, Matt, and Brandon in Slate's Ask a Teacher column publishing every Thursday. And thank you so much to you listeners for joining us. We do have a regular mom and dad are fighting episode coming to your feed this Thursday. So please, as always, send us your questions at mom and dad at slate.com. 
Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. A special thanks to Slate Senior Managing Producer June Thomas. And for Amy Scott, Matthew Dix, Cassie Sarnell, and Brandon Hersey, I'm Jamila Lemieux.